Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill and Dan Z, my co-host on this show, and I am recording this on Wednesday, May 15th. And this past week, Dan, has been loaded with Lucasfilm news. I mean, you saw those pictures that Iger tweeted out from inside Galaxy's Edge, right? Oh, yeah. And when I saw them, I thought, this is perfect because we're going to be recording a new looking at Lucasfilm very soon. And that is quite tantalizing. But at the same time, I mean, leave it to Iger. You know, it's like, well, I just brought a few friends along. Steven Spielberg <laughs> and J.J. Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy. If you look really closely, if you zoom in on the cockpit, you can see Drew Taylor trying to sneak into the picture. <laughs> really? Okay. For me, what was intriguing is to have actual people in these spaces now and getting scale and yeah i thought about that as well mm -hmm. it completely fills out the blueprint that we've been given that this is the official falcon that disney and lucasfilm was going to go with scale wise design everything about it and it just kind of fleshes it out a little bit more i thought it was interesting that bob Iger, you know the ceo of disney is taking this picture with jj abrams and steven spielberg and kathleen kennedy and then they have the little construction fence up, too. I thought, really, mm. you can't take the fence down to take a picture with Bob Iger? Are they in that much of a hurry that they can't stop for that? I don't know what to tell you. The last time that Steven Spielberg was allowed to look at a, a Star Wars-related thing early, that's how we wound up with Back to the Future, the ride. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, well, they had the mock-up built at Imagineering, and George insisted, oh, you got to come, you got to see this. So Spielberg wrote it a couple of times and went back to the folks at Universal, and poof, Disney's doing cool stuff. We should do cool stuff. He actually then insisted they put a lot more money into Universal Studios Florida, and that's how we wound up with Back to the Future of the Ride. So going to be interesting to see what happens on the Universal side of the fence here. Before we, we step away from Galaxy's Edge, You'd been hearing from Star Wars fans in regard to the reservation system? or I haven't heard anything as far as success that people have had. I know, of course, that within you know what less than two hours, everything was sold out for Disneyland's mm -hmm. opening run. But I, I, that's all I know so far. What about you? I've kind of resigned myself to, I've done the opening day thing. I've done DCA, I was there at the butt crack of dawn to be among the first in the animal kingdom. And I'm an old fart now, Dan. Fighting crowds, and particularly in this situation where you have to get a reservation to get in, it's like, let the other folks figure this out. My concern is what Disney has flat out said is for the first three weeks, we're trying this thing. And then after that, we're going to try something different. And so. If it's all the same to you guys, I'll wait till they've sorted it out and check it out then. I'll be waiting at the cantina for you. I'm just going to stay there. <laughs> well, there we go. Tell Olga to keep my drink warm. I will. We're old friends. Yeah. Is a tauntaun served cold or... Yeah, fuzzy tauntaun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying that, actually. <sighs> Disney just had a release of all the different foods, uh, even more detail, including some of the breakfast options that they're going to have, and a lot more detail of the ingredients... 
uh, what's going into these things. That looks fantastic. I mean, Disney, well, I've always liked kind of eating the Disney anyway, and this is going to make it even better. No, I agree. I agree. And not to now pivot to a sadder note, but obviously over the past week or so, we lost Peter Mayhew. He actually passed away on, on April 30th. Family didn't release the news until four days later on May 4th, and he's had a number of health challenges over the, the last five or so years. I yeah. mean, there were the knee replacements in 2013, and there was a bout of pneumonia in 2015, and didn't he have spinal surgery just last summer? Or? Yeah, that's what they say. I mean, he and, you know, he'd already been... What What is it that we talked about when you were on coffee with Kenobi earlier in the week about he had he suffered from Giganta or what is that is that the correct pronunciation he in fact was was very insistent that it wasn't gigantism but he wanted to point out that in my case I don't have the large head or that sort of thing I I forget which medical condition caused his size but that's why George put him in the Wookiee suit and after what with these all these health issues after Force Awakens finished shooting in November of 2014 he effectively hung up his Wookiee suit and then handed off the duties of playing Chewbacca to Junus Su- Suetamo. There we go. I interviewed right. him and he kept, and I had him repeat his name a few times so I could pronounce it correctly. And I said, I'm sorry I'm messing it up. And he said, don't worry, everybody else does too. <laughs> okay. Peter was seven foot three inches, where Junus is only only uh, six feet 11 inches. And it's like, so does that mean... His Chewbacca wears lifts or platform shoes. In fact, I want to issue a correction from what we recorded for uh, your Peter Mayhew tribute for Coffee Kenobi uh, last night. I mentioned that the last time that Peter played Chewbacca would be The Force Awakens, but it turns out that he and Junus actually split duties on The Force Awakens. My understanding is if... If Chewbacca was in, like, the, the cockpit or the scene where Finn yeah. is tending to him after he's been wounded, that's Peter. But evidently, the running scenes, the action scenes, any movement, that was Junus. Oh, wow. It's seamless, too. You really, you yeah. really Their eyes, everything. But by the time Last Jedi rolled around, did you know that the working title for that thing was Space Bear? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mark Hamill was very public about that from uh, during shooting. Was it really? A lot I mean, of the it, a lot of the merchandise that some of the crew had has the logo for Space Bear on it. I've actually got some of it. Oh, cool! And it's not some sort of veiled reference to Chewie or anything like that, because I love the name Space Bear. I mean, it's it's no Blue Harvest, but you know, no, it just I, but it's great. Yeah, but again, if you you watch, Peter wasn't necessarily on camera, but if you watch the credits, and I think we mentioned this last night, that buried in the credits for Last Jedi is Wookie Consultant. Yes. As I, we keep mentioning here, Dan and I put together a tribute uh, to Mr. Mayhew, who died of a heart attack at his home in Boyd, Texas, uh, just a few weeks shy of his 75th birthday. In fact, this coming Sunday, May 19th, would have been his 75th birthday. So, oh, wow. If you, if you want to hear that, head over to Copy with Kenobi. And you also had, uh, was it Anthony who came on? Who, who else did you talk with? Uh, Clayton Sandell. Clayton, that's right. Yes. That's right. And we we talked quite a bit about it, and he he of course has chatted with him as just like you have, and mm-hmm. he's a great guy, and he had a, a wonderful impact on a lot of people. Uh, the things that he did uh, that you and I spoke about, some of the charity work he did for children, I thought was pretty wonderful. So definitely go to Coffee with Kenobi for that one. It's it's show number two hundred and seventy nine. Okay, 
And getting back to oh, what we've done in previous shows, I think it was on our last episode, uh, Dan, you and I were talking about the hiatus that Bob Iger was talking about, the break that was going to be between yeah. the rise of Skywalker and, and the next Star Wars film that we were like, how long is, is long? And, and then a few days later, they tell us. There we go. See, I mean, we just had a little bit out of sync. But yeah, back on May 7th, Disney released a, a this amazing document where they basically laid claim to release dates as far out as December of 2027. And among those dates were the dates of the next three Star Wars films, or the, excuse me, the films after Rise of Skywalker. And, and Indiana Jones, too. Yeah, yeah. I was rather pleased to see the Indy, who I think we've talked about a couple of times, has is, is had its release date slide a couple of times. They held firm with the July 2021, isn't it? That's or, right. That's right. I am very excited for that already. To circle back to the Star Wars film. So we have December 2022, likewise December of 2024, and then we have December of 2026. But what do you think of the the spacing thing? Oh, more to the point, the fact that they're sharing this pre-Christmas date with four new Avatar movies? Yeah, that's that's what they're telling us, if, if James Cameron can make that happen. I think it's it's brilliant. It's marketing. It's also rather bold. I mean, I know Disney is usually pretty good about putting out at least a few years in advance dates, mm. but they went really, really far out there. I mean, we're going all the way to 2027. I mean, that's... That's a bit audacious, really. But I mean, well, these are the juggernauts. As you said, I think when you're talking with Len, these are the 800-pound gorillas, and no mm. one's going to compete with those. Well, I think this is Disney in a lot of ways sticking a, a flag and release. And face it, this oh, yeah. is the new Disney. This is Disney with 20th Century Fox, which already had between Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilm and Walt Disney Animation Studios has a lot of entities that need good strong dates for their films and in fact the disney produced star wars movies force awakens december of 2015 rogue one december 2016 and then we had last jedi and that was december 2017 right that's right almost the exact same date the 18th the 15th the 15th again and here's rise of skywalker which is coming out on december 20th of this year the Walt Disney Company is a very big believer in these specific days for specific movies. You know, for example, if you look at Frozen 2, which is coming out on November 22nd of this year, if you look ahead to what Disney has decided to do with the films that are being released by Walt Disney Animation Studios... In 2020, 2021, 2022, again, it's virtually the exact same date, November 25th, 24th, 23rd. It's that Wednesday before Thanksgiving, which then allows five days of families in the house with one another staring at each other after they've eaten turkey. And it's like, well, what do you want to do now? Well, let's go to the movies. Disney's done almost the exact same thing with Marvel. In fact, a lot of people in the industry are fascinated by the fact that the summer blockbuster season used to start Memorial Day weekend, Dan. Yeah, that's right. The original Star Wars trilogy and the prequel. Well, the prequels opened like a week before Memorial Day, but the original Star Wars movies all opened basically for the Memorial Day weekend. What Marvel was able to do was to take that date, which had previously been sort of considered the start of 
summer blockbuster season and go, no, I think we can make this earlier. And they, they pushed it out to late April, early May. And they actually trained their audience that it's that time of spring, so you're you're going to get a new Avengers movie or a high-profile you know, Captain America film or that sort of thing. And circling back to Star Wars, though, I know you and I have talked about the whole Solo situation at length before, right. but Disney's just now gotten the final box office numbers for Mary Poppins's theatrical run. And remember, they, they made the choice to put Mary Poppins in what had been the Star Wars slot, being released to theaters just out ahead of the holidays, with the hope that it'll do big box office, it'll roll into award season, and do, you know, really, really well. And in both cases, they were wrong, Dan. I mean, mind you, if you, you line up on Mary Poppins Returns, domestic box office versus Solo, the ticket Solo sold in North America... Mary Poppins basically did twice the business that Solo did. It it sold $171 million worth of tickets versus... I still can't believe that Solo only sold $84 million worth of tickets here in the States. I don't get that either. That that seems inconscionable to me. It's a Star Wars movie with the Millennium Falcon in it, and it only made that much. There's all sorts of theories between the wrong date and bringing it out just three months after... Last Jedi, but if you factor in how Mary Poppins did overseas, it's a very different story. Mary Poppins Returns only did 349 million worldwide. Solo tapped out just short of 400 million. Uh, I don't know if you've been following. They've begun the merging of Disney and Fox's promotion department, so they've begun to do a lot of layoffs. Yeah, I have, unfortunately. Yeah, and there's a number of people in the building who it's like, it's not my fault, <laughs> you know, that Poppins, did the, Poppins Returns did that business. I was the one who said we should have put Solo out during that. Again, you have to burn through what's already in the pipeline. And so Steven Spielberg is just now ramping up for production of his redo of West Side Story. And in fact, just today, news broke about this live-action version of Cruella uh, looks like Emma Thompson is going to be joining Emma Stone in the film. But those two films are basically splitting the holiday spot for 2020. Spielberg's movie is coming out on uh, the 18th in 2020. And then on December 23rd, Corella is coming out. But after that, the decision at Disney is, as we talked about, Dan, you know, just from this point forward, the holidays belong to Star Wars, and if it's not a Star Wars movie, it's an Avatar movie. Well, let's talk about the fact that Star Wars has got this incredible resurgence and all these things going for it and all these different balls in the air. And they're going to take a three-year hiatus, which is, mm-hmm. for us, you know, the original six films, when they were in their releases, there were three years between films. We talked about this last week, and or two weeks ago and other times as well. And so that was pretty much the norm. But now that we've become used to this oversaturation of marketing and product, the -hmm. fact that we're still going to have to wait three years for uh, between the rise of Skywalker and the next Star Wars film, that's going to be fascinating culturally to me to see. I mean, obviously, one of the reasons they're doing this is to build that hype train again for Star Wars because Star Wars is not like Marvel. It requires much more of a slow burn and it's much more epic in its scope overall. So I think this is how they're going to reboot that. 
I knew they were going to wait a while. You and I both talked about that. I didn't think they were going to go three years. Then it's going to be every two years, which I think is probably a little more realistic for the time frame that we live in. But I think it's bold, and I think it's the right decision. I don't know how people will react to it initially, but I think it's cool that they are going to be that wise and cautious. I mean, that slow burn, that delayed gratification, I think... uh, is impressive for Disney. I didn't really expect that, but they are, they know how much money this franchise is for them, and that gives them time to really enjoy the fruit of their labors with Galaxy's Edge and the Disney streaming service, too. Bob Iger, just this past week, during the quarterly earnings conference call, this very same question came up, and he's like, we believe that the th- three-year wait, it'll build interest, it'll build appetite, During this call, Bob revealed who's going to be riding herd on the next saga. They didn't say trilogy. They said the next Star Wars saga. So we we don't know how many chapters this is. But the two gentlemen who are riding herd on this are David Benoff and D.B. Weiss. These are the creators of HBO's hugely popular Game of Thrones. And obviously we're in the middle of that show wrapping up its eighth season and you know, I don't want to spoil anything for everybody who hasn't seen episodes, but um, there was this just, I guess, this weird parallel between what had just happened with The Last Jedi and how certain segments of the Game of Thrones fans uh, have been reacting to these last set of episodes for uh, Season 8. And what was interesting to watch these Star Wars fans leap on this. And it's like, these are the guys? These are the guys who are going to do the saga? The ones who, who just delivered the, the episodes that aren't making people happy of Game of Thrones? And I don't fret about movies that are three and a half years away. They don't even have scripts or a cast or a title or anything? Or no, sets that's it exactly, you know? Yeah. I'll wait till see the first trailer or... Or when they start to cast up. The rise and fall of, of a series or creators, I mean, these are mutually exclusive concepts. Whatever they do with one does not necessarily translate into something that's going to happen three years later in a completely different fictional universe. And mm-hmm. I've only seen season one of Game of Thrones, so I'm certainly not equipped or a credible person to discuss it, so I, so I won't. But I will say mm-hmm. that whatever these two are doing... The buzz and the excitement and the fervor, I mean, I think the ratings were at an all-time high for this episode. Mm -hmm. So that's saying something for uh, this cultural phenomenon, this this kind of a dragon in its own right, the way Game of Thrones has just taken over Sunday nights whenever the series is going on. So I've always said Star Wars needs to be a family film. Clearly Game of Thrones is far from family fare. Mm -hmm. So that's that's always been my, my hope for whatever these two decide to do. They're obviously very talented. If they're going to wait three years to make a new Star Wars film, they're not going to put something out that's going to make everybody really upset and angry. That's one of the reasons why they're waiting so long anyway. So I think we just practice our Jedi patience and enjoy the rise of Skywalker and just kind of go from there. You mentioned the three and a half years, and of course we need to acknowledge that this is not exactly going to be a Star Wars drought. We still have The Mandalorian and that Rogue One prequel series with Diego Luna that's in the works for Disney+. Plus. Again, as part of this quarterly earnings call, Iger mentioned that there's a third series in the works and that this live-action series, we should expect that to pop up before the in-theater premiere of the Benoff and Weiss new Star Wars saga in December of uh, 2022. 
So it's like, all right, what's that going to be about? But the other thing that makes me happy is that, you know, there have been these rumors bubbling up about Willow. And just this, uh, earlier this month, uh, here's uh, Ron Howard on the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast. And he's confirming that a Willow TV series is actually under consideration. I don't know if the proper term to use at this point is development uh, for Disney+. Plus. Here's a quote, Dan, from the, uh, the the podcast. Ron told the host there that we're in discussions about developing a Willow television series for D- the Disney+. Plus. And I think it's a great way to go. George always talked about the possibility of a Willow series, and it'd be great and more intimate and built around the character, that or that character and some of the others. And John Kasdan has, has I think, an inspired take on it, and it would be really, really cool. And uh, for those of you who don't know, John Kasdan is the son of Lawrence Kasdan, the gentleman who wrote Empire and Raiders. And John actually worked with his dad on the script for Solo. This is a guy who's you know got the sort of the Lucasfilm story thing in his veins. And to continue here, there there were some really serious discussions going on with John Kasdan, uh, who, as he, uh, Ron mentions here, one of the writers of Solo, who kept hounding me about Willow the whole time we were shooting and also hounding Kathleen Kennedy. So I think that's promising. Are you ready for a, a Willow TV series? I remember seeing Willow in theaters when it came out, and that's the only time I've ever seen it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't know the Willow characters if they had name tags. But sure, if it makes people happy, great. Remember, this is Warwick Davis we're talking about here. And and poor Warwick has been championing a Willow revival for three decades. And so now that it looks like it's actually going to happen, I, you know, I'm very happy for the guy. Uh, while he was out doing press for Solo last year, Howard talked a little bit about uh, what they were considering doing with Willow. He says, I don't want to give too much away, but there is talk a little talk of Willow. We wouldn't call it Willow 2, but I think it would focus a lot on Alora Dannon, though Willow would have to be significantly involved. So I'm always happy when I see him pop up, whether it's in a Harry Potter film or the work he's done for Lucas, or for that matter, you know, the wonderful job he does at things like Star Wars Celebration. So just happy for the guy that looks like this is going to happen. And Speaking of things that need to happen, Dan and I need to go take a commercial break here, but When we get back, we're going to talk about one of Lucasfilm's lesser-known movies, which is The Radioland Murders. Dan, I don't need to tell you, especially given the classes that you teach about Star Wars and, you know, the various influences that George used when he was making The New Hope or that sort of thing. I mean, this is a guy who just flat out loved movies. And whether it was the movies he caught when he was a kid or whether when he was a a film student at USC, what I've always enjoyed about George Lucas was his ability to take bits and pieces of the movies that he'd loved and sort of put them into that mixed master of a mind that he had and what would come out at the other end was brand new, but still so very familiar. Yeah, his own, his own, this is the nostalgia, but he puts his own spin, his own fragrance on it, if you will. Yeah, and you look at New Hope, and you can clearly see where the Buck Rogers serials from the 1930s that George saw when he was a kid when they were running on 1950s, where they came into play. 
There's movies like The Dam Busters, uh, that 1955 uh, British film about... It's based on a real story of the RAF flyers that, that made... A, you had to go way behind enemy lines and take out a trio of dams in Germany that crippled the war effort over there. And if you watch that and then you watch the X-Wings in the trench trying to take out the exhaust port, there's clearly some connective tissue here. Yeah, and in some of the old school documentaries about the making of A New Hope, they give sample shot-by-shot comparisons of the dogfights in the World War II Ambusters and other World War II films versus A New Hope, too, which is great. When they were actually doing the editing of the original New Hope, didn't they have World War II footage from World War II films edited into the work print? And That's right. As they'd get an effect scene in, they'd swap them out? That's right, just to give you that tone and that, that kind of flavor for what he was going for. Very much so. You look at that, and then you look at the lifts he made from Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress, where this samurai film, and yet George looked at it, and here you have your hero with his two bickering supporting servants, and it's like, those guys, the supporting guys, I like them. And how interesting it is to tell this story from their point of view, and New Hope is basically told from the point of view of C-3PO and R2-D2, what they observe, where they are at particular moments in the story. So, I mean, I just, I love that, you know, all of that came together to make New Hope. George loved all movies. You know, he was a, a big fan of the silent comedians. I don't know if you've heard about how supposedly a lot of what Jar Jar Banks does in Phantom Menace was inspired by what Buster Keaton did with his silent films back in the 20s. Which Lucas kind of confirmed at the D23 Expo when he was made and put in their Hall of Fame. Goofy was supposedly one of the big influences for Jar Jar, you know, those shorts. And one of the reasons I love George Lucas is that he's a huge fan of Abbott Costello. I know these days these burlesque comedians aren't as popular as they once was. In fact, it's been kind of interesting Abbott and Costello, when they came to prominence in the 1940s, threw Laurel and Hardy into eclipse. And But what's kind of interesting nowadays is, in fact, we just this past year, we had that wonderful Stan and Ollie movie. Laurel and Hardy have kind of thrown uh, Abbott and Costello into uh, eclipse. And huh. people don't know their work quite as much, but I mean, these guys were huge in the 40s. I, I love them. I actually showed the boys are teenagers now, but when they were younger, I showed them a ton of Abbott and Costello movies, and I still think they are genius. So I'm really glad we're going to talk about this. I, I love them. I love oh, them. Oh, good, good. But they worked like Trojans for Universal. They signed contract with the studio. They had been, uh, I want to say they were uh, supporting comics. Their first film was uh, One Night in the Tropics, and... Uh, and then after that, they get their own standalone project, Buck Privates. And over the 16 years they were under contract with Universal, then they made 28 movies for the studio. Which is insane. And never mind the three that they made at MGM during the same period or the two they made at Warner's. Nobody works like that anymore. Not even Sam Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> well, Although he's yeah, close. You know, maybe Sam. Maybe Sam. But you're making all those movies and they had, for seven or so years in the 40s, they also had a weekly radio series. I mean, that, that's just crazy. But speaking of, of, of radio, there was a one particular Abbott and Costello comedy that George Luke absolutely loved, and it's called Who Done It? 
released the theaters back in November of 1942. It's a, it's a comedy a murder mystery set at a radio station. And George just loved the energy of this thing. I mean, it, it zips along. It's only 76 minutes long. It's Bud and Lou at the absolute top of their game. The Abbott and Costello movies aren't the greatest movies ever made. They're not terribly artful, but they are slick, professionally produced pieces of entertainment. The, the sorts of things that, that Hollywood in the golden age used to churn out every week. You know, and, yeah. and you know, you had professionals in front of the camera behind the camera there was this huge level of craft and Abbott and Costello were at the height of their popularity during World War II where for the first couple of years of World War II we weren't entirely sure we were going to win we were a frightened country it was a scary time and to have these two men show up in your movie theater two and three times a year and make you laugh that was a great thing and we jump ahead to the uh, the 1970s, and George has lots of ideas for movies. He's got that Star Wars thing. Likewise, Apocalypse Now. I mean, George started developing Apocalypse Now, and then Francis Ford Coppola kind of took it over. That's right. George had done all of this research on the Vietnam War and found ways to fold it into the Star Wars movies. I mean, you know about the Ewoks and the, the parallels with the Viet Cong, right? Not only do I know about it, but I, I swear to you, today in class, I talked about this in my mythology class. This exact sequence <laughs> and the exact Holy rationale cow. with the Viacom. Look at that. We're on the same wavelength. That is so cool. Okay. Well, George so loved this Abbott and Costello movie, this, this whodunit. He basically wrote his own sort of tribute to it. And this was called The Radio Land Murders. It's August of 1973. Universal Pictures has just released American Graffiti. It's a huge hit. Universal's like, well, what else you got? It's like, well, I, I got this kind of Abbott Costello thing. And, and Universal's like, well, that's cool. They used to be ours. And, and so they agree to make Radio Land Murders. And George just loved the idea that, holy cow, I'm going to get to shoot an Abbott Costello movie on the Universal lot, probably in a soundstage where Abbott and, and, and Lou actually shot a movie. Universal had just seen what George could do with a period film. Because remember, American Graffiti is set in 1962 small-town America. This guy can do period stuff. This is 1973, all right? So Peter Bogdanovich, Paper Moon, had just come out in May of that year. And what comes out at Christmas? In fact, from Universal. But George Royhill's The Sting. And both period movies, both do a huge business at the box office, both win Academy Awards. So there's clearly appetite out there for a film from this era. So Universal's like, woof, Radio Land Murders. Maybe this can capitalize on this. And George keeps it small. George keeps it in-house. It's like, I got Gloria Katz. I got Willie Huck. They worked with me on the screenplay for American Graffiti. And they would eventually go on to write the screenplay of Temple of Doom. I think we talked about that last week. Off of George's treatment outline, they work up a script for Radio Land Murders. And Gary Kurtz, producer of Star Wars, signs on to be the producer of this project. And they got so far as to begin preliminary casting. And so they're trying to rope in Steve Martin and Cindy Williams. Cindy Williams had just been in American Graffiti and George had gotten an amazing performance out of her. So it was like all the elements were there for a hit film. The plan was, as soon as George got back from London, where he was shooting this little sci-fi film for 20th Century Fox, you know, something's supposed to come out in December of 76, and 
ran behind schedule, so it gets pushed to May of 77. Soon as that's done, Jerry's going to report back to Universal, and he and Gary Kurtz are going to get started on Radio Land Murders. And Dan, that's obviously not what happened. Star Wars A New Hope becomes its behemoth, blocks out the sun. Fox immediately begins pushing for a, a sequel. And and so Radio Land Murders production gate gets pushed from 78 to 79. Then in December of 1979, Steven Spielberg's uh, 1941 gets released to theaters. And this epic comedy, uh, which just like Radio Land Murders, was set in and around Hollywood just as World War II is getting underway. 1941 goes woefully over budget. It cost $35 million to make back then. And then it performs at the box office. And since Universal was splitting the cost of making 1941 with Warner Brothers and now knew how much making a period comedy set in the 40s was going to cost. And they also knew from the ticket sales that maybe there wasn't an audience out there for this. So the studio loses its enthusiasm for Radio Land Murders. And this... George Lucas' passion project goes from being a top priority at Universal to something that's on the back burner. And, and of course, George then gets busy. I mean, a one five-year period in the early 1980s, he does Empire, Raiders, Return of the Jedi, and Temple of Doom. It's not bad. Not a bad run. No, no, not at all. But, but when you also factor in all of the effects work, that Lucasfilm was doing for films like Wrath of Khan, and he's a busy guy, but he never loses his enthusiasm for Radio Land Murders, and so every so often, this title would bubble up in the trades, and mention that George Lucas, this is something that George is planning to get around to eventually, and what eventually gets Universal excited again about Radio Murder, uh, Radio Land Murders, is as part of his ramp up to doing the prequels, George and, and the Wizards of Effects at Industrial Light and Magic are experimenting with digital mats. George realizes that these digital mats, which could be used to recreate 1940s Chicago, oh, by the way, because of what happened with 1941, they move Radioland murders out of Hollywood and put it in Chicago to figure, give it a different city, and you know people won't associate the two. Early 1993... George goes to executives at Universal Pictures and says, look, I can make Radio Land murders for you guys for the low, low price of just $10 million. It's one-third of what it cost, or it's less than one-third of what it cost to make 1941 back in 1979. Universal loves the idea of an affordable period comedy from George Lucas, so they greenlight the project. Unfortunately, because George is now, you know, I'm going to do it for this regular short price, he can't actually afford to shoot it in Hollywood, what with the unions and all that. So one of the things that genuinely drew George to, to this was that he was going to get the shoot where Bud and Lou shot. He can't do that. So he ends up in North Carolina at Carroll Cove Studios. Weird, weird, weird side note. And I, I don't know if this is actually true, but George supposedly, while he was out doing press for the release of Radio Land Murders, mentioned that... Brian Benben and Mary Stu Masterson's characters would eventually become the parents of Richard Dreyfuss's character from American Graffiti. Oh, boy. Which, you know, I mean, it, okay. it's, it's not, I am your father, Luke, but it's, no. it's, it's close. Interesting. Yeah, close. You know, if you watch Radio Land Murders now, it's this festival of wonderful 
supporting character actors. I mean, you got Ned Beatty, Harvey Corman, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKeon, Bobcat Goldthwait, Larry Miller, uh, Jeffrey Tambor. It's got amazing production values. And again, these incredible digital mats in the early, early days of, of CG. Downside is Universal insisted as part of the green lighting of this thing is that a lot of the references to the classic radio shows of the 1940s be cut because they figured, look, it's 1990s. It's 50 years past this form of entertainment. Nobody's going to recognize any of this stuff. And they actually bring in two writers who did moonlighting. In fact, the, these guys also punched up the script for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But, you know, in this weird too many cooks thing, uh, Radioland Murders loses a lot of fizz and fun. The stuff that made George initially excited about the project. Upside, Radioland Murders, in a lot of ways, is the film that made the prequels possible. Again, very early use of CGI technology and the studio, uh, the radio studio exterior, several interiors. In fact, there's an amazing scene with a biplane circling a radio tower, all computer generated. In the end, Radioland Murders had more than 100 effect shots, which was more than the original Jurassic Park had back in the day. Wow, that's insane. Downside, though, because George himself didn't direct this period comedy, uh, British comic Mel Smith did, and that may have been another miscalculation. You had a Brit directing a movie that was trying to to imitate or pay homage to an Abbott Costello movie from the 1940s. and But George was on set, you know, the whole time observing his producer and seeing what was possible with the digital mats and learning about this next generation of camera equipment. And the last time George had directed was 1976. Is that why he didn't direct this one too? Or did he just sort of, was he just too busy doing other things? Because you feel like with a passion project, he would want to take the reins. It's in North Carolina. It's not like anybody in the industry would be looking over his shoulder. But 93, 94, he had just begun to talk about writing the prequels, right? Uh, that's how, well, that's, well that, I guess. I mean, yeah, because the first one was 1999. So that's probably right. Yeah, I guess you got to walk before you can run. And yep. what better way to sort of ease your way back into directing to sort of be a very hands-on producer? And he was a very hands-on producer. I mean, you know... They shot from, it started shooting in October of 1993. They finished shooting. George took a look at the footage they had at that point and then ordered an additional two weeks of shooting to fill out the film. And the sad part is that drove up the cost of the film just a little bit. Instead of a $10 million movie, it was a $15 million movie. But that really didn't matter, Dan, because when this thing came out in October of 1994, it made for its entire box office run 1.3 million dollars it was the wrong film at the wrong time and didn't connect with audiences and when i look at radio land murders i treat it like a buffet it may not be the greatest film of the world but on the other hand it's the very last time that george burns is ever on camera this is the very last thing he worked on it has performances by my favorite comic in the world, Robert Klein, and one of my favorite vocalists, Rosemary Clooney. Oh, yeah. As somebody who loves Abbott and Costello, I appreciate what George is trying to do here. And even though he had to strip off the names of them, you know, you're watching this movie and it's like, oh, my God, that's supposed to be the Andrews sisters. Or, oh, my God, that's supposed to be Spike Jones and the City Slickers. And 
I look at it now, and, and no disrespect to Michael Ben Ben and you know and Mary Stuart Masterson, but I would kill to see the version of this that was going to be made in the 1970s with George himself directing, starring Steve Martin and Cindy Williams. And in fact, just to sort of cap off tonight's show, I sent you the poster yeah. that Universal made up in 1974. In fact, the Universal would send out these packets to exhibitors about all the films they'd be making, you know, coming in the coming year. And they put together a poster for Radioland Murders. And the, the top caption of this thing reads, from the brilliant American Graffiti creative team and then it's this family gathered in front of their radio staring right into the things and it that the catchphrase is who knows what evil lurks and the thing that just leaps out at me dan is they list this production as a locust film i've never heard <laughs> that one any of yeah george's films described that way as a locust film no that's i don't know if that was um a marketing guffaw or like a, an editing mistake or whatever. I mean, there are a lot of people that still list Lucasfilm as either two words or capitalize the L and the F, but it's just one word, Lucasfilm. Yeah. They really dropped the ball on this one. I mean, if it had come out in the 70s, it may have affected A New Hope. I mean, who knows? Obviously, we can't have that. But I agree with you. The, the original vision for this was pretty great. It's too bad that you'd think that George had enough clout that he could have made this more or put more into it but that may have been another thing that as you said drove him to the prequels because maybe that maybe that was the last straw where he thought you know what no i'm just going to put my money and do this the way i want to do it and that's what he did but again i just i look at this mock-up poster screenplay by willard huck and gloria katz story by george lucas directed by george lucas and produced by gary katz and and I don't know if you can read the type that they've laid the poster on top of, but they, they have this catchphrase for the next year at Universal Studios. And it's like, even more in 74 from Universal. And Is that the same writers as Temple of Doom? Yeah, yeah, they yeah. are. They are. And not only that, also Willard and Gloria not only wrote Howard the Duck for George, but Willard actually directed it. So they were a key part of his creative team for a long, long time. But we mentioned at the very top of the show that you and I had just recorded a brief bit for Coffee with Kenobi. But if they, they just can't wait for the next episode, where else can they find you around the web, Dan? Sure thing. You can find me each week on Coffee with Kenobi, a Star Wars podcast that tries to make you think about Star Wars and laugh a little bit in the process. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Zer, M-R-Z-E-H-R. And you can also find my writing on StarWars.com and IGN. Okay, my side of the fence. We got the Disney Dish podcast with Len Testa. We have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. We have the I Want That podcast with Michelle Valladolid. Do us a favor, head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our shows. Uh, if, on the other hand, you really, really, really like what we do, if you get over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that does help keep the lights on over around here. On behalf of Mr. Z, thanks for listening, folks, and have a good night. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.